Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Tony Lyons, the creator of Skyhorse Publishing. Tony, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good today. I'm really happy to be chatting with you. Thank you for calling in from New York. Sure. Thanks for having me. So Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and 3 p.m. on Tuesdays at 101.9 FM KVSH. It's also available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org, or you can swing by my website, marchtwisdale.com, and get tons of information there. I even have a podcast that just got started this week. So, Tony, we're going to dive right in. We've got a beautiful laundry list here of cool things we're going to talk about. Can you go ahead and give our listeners a sense of who you are? Sure. So, my name is Tony Lyons, and I founded Skyhorse Publishing 10 years ago. Uh, prior to that, I was a lawyer and have worked in the publishing field for 25 years. Skyhorse has about uh, 95 people working here. We have 14 Im- imprints uh, pretty much across the spectrum of publishing. So we're, we got a whole bunch of cool stuff we're going to chat about. And one of the books that your assistant sent to me is Touch the Earth by Julian Lennon. And I think, is this one already available or is it about to be available? The pub date was yesterday. Haha, perfect. Um, and uh, Julian Lennon was on the Today Show in People Magazine. He's going to be on The View, has been on a bunch of other shows. And it's a very early childhood book. It's a picture book, and it's meant to teach children about the importance of, of the environment, of mm-hmm. protecting it, and of maintaining it. And, and, and we think it's a lovely way to sort of develop a a sensitivity towards trying to protect the planet for themselves and for their own children. He created the White Feather Foundation? Right. Some of the proceeds go to that foundation. What is it that Skyhorse Publishing sees itself having as sort of a role in society? Yeah, that's a tough question. You know, my feeling is that there are many subjects that are just not covered by the mainstream media, or when they are covered, they're covered in a an incredibly myopic way. So when it comes to politics, I favor publishing books that show some alternative view, not necessarily Skyhorse having a specific point of view that, that we're trying to get out there, but, right. but trying to publish books that are provocative in the sense that they question the prevailing view. So, you know, for example, uh, we published a book in, in October before the election called The Plot to Hack America by Mm -hmm. Malcolm Nance. And it was a very successful book. Malcolm was on probably 40 or 50 TV shows. That started out, I mean, when I I first heard about it, it was kind of cutting-edge news. And I was fascinated by that, and, and I decided to bring that book out really, really quickly. So we put a whole team of, of people on it, and we published it in about 10 days. Wow. And then for the next four or five months, it became pretty much just 24-7 news, you know, mm-hmm. that every bad thing that had ever happened in the United States from the beginning of time up until the election of Donald <laughs> Trump was because of the Russians. Right. And so then I started to become open to the idea that, you know, at the very least, maybe we were going too far mm-hmm. with this sort of anti-Russian mentality. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
so out of that came a book that, that we're just publishing now, which is called The Plot to Scapegoat Russia. You know, so I don't, I don't feel that, that my role is to tell anybody which of those two narratives is the truth. Mm-hmm. What I feel like my role is, is to bring up the issue that there is a different side to this story mm-hmm. and that if you're really going to think versus just sort of spout out what you hear on television, mm-hmm. you have to have both sides of, of a story. Right. Or all five sides of a story exactly. sometimes. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I think it is such a mark of integrity. You just have this great opportunity to take the power of publishing and use it to bring the less often heard thoughts and ideas up into the public platform for discussion and awareness building. Yeah, that that's that's what I'm thinking. And, and you know, some of the time... I don't think it's it's necessary to to publish on on both sides. So if we hadn't published the first book on the plot to hack America, uh, I don't think I would want to publish that now because that story is so mainstream that it's not as exciting now as it would have been at the time. Right. Whereas now the fascinating story for me is the alternative story, the story that that rounds out people's ability to actually think through the state of the country. Right. And there's a lot of um, thinking that's needed right now in America, for sure. Definitely. Which reminds me of the fact that 1984, written in the 40s or 50s, just had, you said, a huge upsurge and became the number one selling book in America, like for two or three weeks after the election. Is that true? Yeah, I was really fascinated by that, and my take on it was a bit different than than many people who I talked to, and uh, many people sort of in the in the mainstream news business. And that was that part of what's happening now is that you know even though there are lots of things that Trump is doing now that I think are unconscionable, and, and we have a book called Horsemen of the Apocalypse that's coming out by Dick Russell and Robert F Kennedy Jr. Right. And that's just coming out this week, and that details some of the tragedies that are going on as far as things that are happening that are going to impact the environment, the, the water, the air. Right. You know, those are critical and, and very serious problems that I think we all need to fight against. I'm, I'm very proud to be publishing that book. Yeah. But I think that there's another side to this whole story, which is that much of the left's view towards Russia, for example, seems to be so absolute and so certain. So I think that it's this uniformity of belief on both sides Mm. without facts, really, um, but with an incredible amount of, of repetition so that even the concept of fake news is happening equally on on both sides. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's been really eye-opening for me to watch humans under pressure. That's what I like to refer to it as, is how do humans behave under pressure? Because you could go out there, I think, and have the same mantra repeated, like you were saying earlier, a message just goes on and on and on. But if it's not something that triggers people or they don't have a reason to care, that message isn't going to stick in their head. I think ultimately what we have is a lot of very fearful people 
who are under pressure and they're looking to relieve their anxiety and their fear, and that means they want an answer. And in that moment, they want a simple answer, a confident answer. You've got the same desire for simple, pat answers to very complex problems. Definitely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we published one book called um, The Gilded Rage. Oh, that sounds familiar. uh, uh, Alexander Zajcik, and he's a Democrat who followed the Trump campaign and met with Trump voters all Mm -hmm. around the country before the election, went out and had beers with them, listened Mm -hmm. to their point of view, and sort of started to get the point that most Democrats weren't getting, that most of the people who were voting for Trump weren't weren't the types of people who were described on CNN, you know, that, that they were not racist, mm-hmm. they were not homophobic, you know, they were... Was that word that she used? They were not the deplorables? They were not the deplorables. They were smart people who had real, sincerely held gripes that they could describe mm-hmm. and that they did describe and they told stories about how they had lost their jobs um, and about how the the places that they lived had deteriorated and their hopes for the future had deteriorated and these are real stories of sincere people hoping that Trump would actually bring jobs back to America Right. And point of the book is that, you know, these are disabled vets or machinists from Wisconsin where the factory closed down or right. construction workers in Michigan. Pennsylvania or miners in West Virginia. Right. You know, you get the point. You know, these are real people with real problems that were not being addressed. And it's a counterintuitive thing because you would think that Democrats would be much more likely to want to help people who are out of work. Mm-hmm. And these people felt that they had been left by the wayside and, and that the Democrats sort of had this globalist view and, you know, didn't care about well, the side effects of some of these policies. Right. And what's really, I mean, what's fascinating is that given what happened in the beginning of Obama's term when he bailed out the banks, essentially the wealth class, and given that he and Hillary Clinton were, you know, globetrotting to push... TPP. Yeah, 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 okay. And they've Trans-Pacific been, Partnership. Right, and they've been out pushing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is just sort of like NAFTA on steroids. So, ironically, a person who's paying attention over the last, well, 8 to 16 to 20 years has some really good reasons to not trust the Democratic Party to look out for the little guy. People have a sense that you're either liberal or conservative. And I always try to say, no, there's economics and there's social issues. And you can be liberal or conservative on either of those. And the Democratic Party has become more and more conservative when it comes to the economic piece while maintaining liberal views on social issues. And people go, oh, you know, they support gay rights. Yay, they must be, quote, all liberal. But on the economics, when you look at the facts, they're still very conservative. And there you go. The poor people are getting poorer. Sure. 
and then you know to a to a, to a great extent you know whether you are a democrat or a republican you know has much less to do with how you as an individual think right. you know it has much much more to do with where you grew up and what your parents think and where you live now what I found fascinating, I was the lead area caucus coordinator for my entire island. We had about 2,000 people who showed up for the caucus. I spent about 500 human hours organizing this event. We had like 60 volunteers in the day of. It was huge. It consumed my life. And what I found fascinating when I did this is it brought me directly in touch with the local Democratic Party. And I've never really engaged so much with them. I'm an activist, but I haven't engaged with like the party loyalists, right? And I was amazed at how much hate speech that would be directed towards, quote, Republicans. And I, I would, it was so startling because I know people in my community who are brilliant, wonderful, moral, ethical, loving, kind Republicans. They're right. great. And I'm, and then these people would just like, like venom is dripping into their cup of coffee. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I never would have known that anyone could think so harshly of someone based upon their political party alignment. It was pretty eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually really deeply boring to sort of even think that so many people have the point of view that there are two kinds of people in the United States. Right. You know, <laughs> and, you know, that one is good and one is bad, you know. Uh. I hope that it's more complicated than, than that. I know, right? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, one of the books that, that we published uh, just a couple of months ago was a book by Roger Stone, who was a close friend and confidant of President Trump. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a book called The Making of the President, 2016. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being from New York, uh, you you can imagine that, that – Many people wondered why I would want to publish this this book, and my, my especially given the subtitle "How Donald Trump Orchestrated a Revolution." Right. So let's be clear: this is definitely a "We Like Donald Trump" book, right? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely, and uh, and it's in in pretty sharp contradiction to the political point of view of the guy who wrote the Gilded Rage, even though that that winds up sort of explaining two Democrats who some of the Republican voters are. Right. Um, but, you know, what, what fascinated me with, with this, this story is that this is the, in, the inside story by somebody who was, who was part of it, who was talking directly to the president um, mm -hmm. on how they actually won the election. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's somehow is a bunch of little stories and a bunch of turning points in, in various regions of the country on certain specific issues mm -hmm. that haven't been addressed, really. You know, that it's, it's so much easier to just say, well, it's all about Russia or it's, it's somehow fraud or, or people, are, um, uh, people are all racist or sexist. And and that's why Clinton lost. And so I was fascinated with his yeah. story, which I think is his real story of how he he thinks it happened. Mm -hmm. And I and I like the idea of being able to add that that piece of the puzzle right. of maybe future elections 
are going to be looked at differently based on this this book. So what what you get from Roger Stone's book are the stories of the fight for those people who aren't decided, and it's a it's a relatively small number, and elections in each state right. are you know often won or lost by 10,000 votes or 30,000 votes. So if you have a specific strategy of how to talk to a specific kind of voter in a specific state, right, that can change the whole outcome. There was a, a young man in, I think, the Puyallup region, um, basically just near here, who wanted to become representative, not a senator, but a representative for his district. And he didn't have a bunch of money, so he spent two years walking all of the streets of his area and knocking on doors and talked to thousands upon thousands of people at their front doorstep. And at the next election, he was um, voted in. Yeah. And I don't think he put, like, any money into posters or, you know, or anything like that. So that was his way of finding the voters. Right. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. But then there, there are stories that something like 25% of Trump voters were, no, 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 it's uh, 25% of people who were going to vote for Bernie Sanders wound up voting for, for Trump. That wouldn't surprise me. There were a and lot of people who they weren't going to vote establishment no matter what. Yeah, and, and, and there, were, there, there was a big percentage of, of Donald Trump voters who were, you know, who, whose main issue was the T, TPP and, mm-hmm. and NAFTA. There are some people who just couldn't go there. I mean, if you've mm-hmm. been devastated by NAFTA already, you can't support the person who's pushing TPP. And Hillary was referring to as the gold standard. And then they did a Freedom of Information Act request for all the documents that um, Hillary had produced as our servant, as Secretary of State, regarding TPP. And it was going to be provided. This was like in May, heading into the California primaries. And then the Obama administration said, you know, we've decided to actually refuse to distribute that information until after the election in November. And at that moment, it was like, because we've got something to hide. I mean, it was like this, and you know, it was a bad year. Yeah, a lot of a lot of crazy stuff. But you know, like I said, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't see my 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 role as sort of trying to convince anybody of anything to put put the the information out there on both sides in certain cases and in, and in other cases just on the side that I think isn't covered and might be valid. Right. So back to what it's like to be president and publisher. There you go. Excellent. That is a really hard job. You yeah, guys are not sitting around eating bonbons and, you know, just watching the books roll out. I mean, this is hard work. No, I mean it's a round the clock job and you know, I don't I don't I don't think somebody takes this kind of job on unless they just love it. And you know, for me when I when I when I look around at, at the books here that I really like, there's a story from, you know, almost all of them. You know, there's a book that we published a few years ago about a white man who was pretty well off in uh, Washington state who lost all of his money and became homeless. Mm-hmm. And an old friend of mine called up and said that he was sitting with the homeless writer of this book, and he wondered if I would fly out to Washington State because he said that he had read it and he thought that I would love it. And I flew out there and I met with the writer 
mm-hmm. and some representatives from the Salvation Army who had also read it and, and really loved it and, and wanted to sort of send him on a tour to teach the world that um, uh, homelessness can strike anybody. Absolutely. And, and I flew out there, met with all of them for something like four or five hours, brainstormed a campaign, and then published the book, which then got, got a rave in the New York Times, wound up selling really, really well. What's but the I mean, name that, of the book? It's called Breakfast at Sally's. Oh, I've heard that title. Uh, 